First, I want to thank all of you as the chairman for the scientific um, poster research and um, abstract committee for coming to Payne Week, another record attendance year. And this is a new course that we're trying, and that is preclinical. And this comes from some of the surveillance survey data that we fill, fill out every year. And I think it's going to be um, quite well received. Uh, we'd like to hear your feedback. And I'd like to formally introduce Dr. Robert Raffa. Um, Bob has uh, had a, uh, wonder, a wonderful career in um, analgesic drug development in the preclinical space. He uh, was uh, the person who ran the Johnson & Johnson um, preclinical drug development unit um, and then went to Temple University and headed up their uh, School of Pharmacy drug development and the bunch of other accolades. He's one of the most recognized um, pharmacologists in the world and, uh, and, a, and a friend of mine and Pain Week. So I'm very honored to have him here and I'm going to hand it over to him. Thank All you, right. Bob. Thank you, Joe. Well, it's delightful to see everybody here at this uh, new presentation and I want to thank uh, Dr. Pergolesi for really uh, coming up with the idea of doing this and uh, promoting it through uh, through the organization, and I just want to say a quick word about what we hope to do today. Today, I just want to talk a little bit about what goes on in the uh, preclinical laboratories. For those of you who are wondering about what goes on there and how drugs are discovered, uh, it's been changing over the years, but some things have remained constant. Also today, we want to talk about some drugs that have gotten into the clinic or on the market and to show a little bit about that translation or transition. And I also want to uh, say that I think next year we hope to uh, talk a little bit more about individual uh, substances that may or may not have made it to uh, the marketplace from the point of view of those uh, discoverers who applied their particular techniques to get it there. So you often hear about, you know, the drugs on the market and the clinical trials and things like that. We're not going to talk about those things per se. We want to talk about how did the discoverers get the drug to where it got into the clinical trials? What techniques did they use? And what hurdles did they come upon and overcome, uh, et cetera? So if anybody is out there or knows of anybody who would like to present their particular drug, I mean, there's certainly lots and lots of examples. I mean, they, all these drugs that made it have uh, interesting histories uh, and struggles, uh, and usually the uh, rules change uh, several times during the course of drug discovery and development. So just have them email me or email me, and we'll be happy to uh, include that particular drug, or maybe you or your colleagues talk about that particular drug. And again, the emphasis will be on drug discovery, not the clinical data, okay? So, because everybody's going to know about the drugs already. I also want to say that maybe they don't know about the drugs already. If they haven't made it that far, uh, it still would be, I think, absolutely fascinating. So, I mean, you could think of lots and lots of possibilities, right? I mean, bias ligand, I mean, uh, you know, we're, not everybody knows the history of where that came from. Not everybody knows what that means or how you would discover one in uh, preclinically. Certainly drugs that have multiple mechanisms of action 
uh, are not easy to discover, particularly the way most analgesics are uh, looked for these days. So that's sort of an interesting story. Any drug with a multi-mechanistic uh, action is uh, always inherently interesting, uh, and anything else. So just let us know. So today what I thought I would do is start out just talking about some generalities. As Joe mentioned, my background was in uh, drug discovery and analgesics drug discovery, and then I worked at a pharma uh, pharmacy school, and then now involved in drug discovery again, but now primarily in non-opioid uh, analgesics. So what I would like to uh, emphasize is some strategies to discover drugs. Uh, as I go around, I listen to what graduate students are told and other students are told. They're given a dogma like there's only one way of drug discovery. Well, it may be partly true that most companies are using one way, uh, but that doesn't mean that there is only one way or that only one way works or the one way that's currently being used is the best. So I want to talk about the different approaches, some of the compounds, and how they fit in with the uh, different uh, ways of looking at this. Now, I call this approaches with the plural because there are many approaches to drug discovery. Drug discovery is still both an art and a science, and there's many ways it can be done. And there we have two very successful drug discoverer, Sir James Black on the left and Paul Jansen on the right. And the reason why I include them is, number one, because they were so successful, but more importantly, because they had a way of drug discovery that I think can be described as polar opposites. And yet they were both extremely uh, effective and successful. Now, you can sort of think of drug discovery program in a pharmaceutical company or an academic institution, and I'm going to make no distinction, uh, sort of as an investment. And there are some strategies of drug discovery that are sort of a little more risky but have a big potential payoff. There are others that are less risky and have maybe less of a payoff but are a little bit more certain to be successful. Now, one thing I've learned uh, is that in order to be successful, uh, it's important to establish a strategy that you can simply state and then stick to it. And if you could do those two things, it's almost guaranteed to work. <laughs> the thing is, though, you have to get the team, the company, and your investors to agree that that is the strategy and that it may take a little time and that if there's little bumps in the road, you're not suddenly going to change the strategy. What does not seem to ever work is to shop around and take little pieces of everybody else's strategy of drug discovery. I have heard cases where the CEO meets another CEO on the golf course and comes back and tells the research people, hey, I know what we're going to do now. That hardly ever works. I would say never works, but maybe there has been one case. I don't know. 
The other is this, uh, ide- the, the old idea was there was little silos, and it doesn't work any better in drug discovery than silos work anywhere else. Uh, everybody has to be talking to everybody else from the very beginning, and particularly nowadays in analgesia, in which there are some standard mechanisms, right? So you have the NSAID, you have acetaminophen, you have the opioids, etc., and they all have their known problems associated with them. So everybody's got to be talking to everybody else. The, the times of coming up with a new chemical entity and expecting no uh, bumps in the road are long gone. Now, there's lots of uh, strategies uh, that I alluded to. I just selected two here. These are sort of two standard approaches, just to make a point. On the left, I'm just calling that sort of the chemical approach, and on the right is sort of the pharmacologic approach. There are no standard names for this, but just to give you an idea. So on the left-hand side, you sort of start with the chemicals. On the right-hand side, you sort of start with the pharmacology. Now, there's lots of places you can start with the chemicals. I'll give you some specific examples shortly, but certainly natural substances are still a source of intriguing ideas, even if ultimately they don't become a marketed compound, they still hold some very intriguing ideas about pharmacology and interaction with the body. Uh, Medicinal chemistry uh, still has a role, Uh, and I'll give you an example of that in which there's no other way of doing it than through uh, the insight of a medicinal chemist. There are now chemical libraries. You could purchase, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of compounds. The idea was that this was going to be the easy way to drug discovery, right? I mean, with a million compounds, there has to be a drug in there somewhere. Well, companies bought all the chemicals from Kodak, right? They had a million compounds. But guess what? They were developed, no pun intended, for the photography market. How many drugs came out of that? Zero plus or minus uh, zero. So that didn't work out so well, but it's still an interesting idea, and the concept is uh, still used. And I'll talk a little bit about that. Now we have combinatorial chemistry, fragment-based design, which I will describe, and also computer molecular modeling, along with uh, artificial intelligence, is sort of the big, uh, a big issue right now. Then once you have the chemical, you can screen it either in vitro or in vivo. Very little uh, drug discovery is screened uh, in animals anymore. They're sort of left to the very, very end as sort of a surprise, like, oh, look, it's not orally active. Uh, Geez, wish we knew this uh, three years ago. Um, So it used to be that they were screened in vivo much earlier on in the drug discovery process, but there's a whole lot of reasons why that's not done anymore, a lot to do with animal welfare and the like. And then there's optimization. Now, the pharmacology way of doing something very similar is equally good, Here you select a target up front. So you're saying, I want a certain receptor agonist or antagonist. And then you 
insert all the pharmacology insight you can into that. You use genomics, you use any other omics in order to get started. And then you screen the chemicals against that target, right? With the chemical approach, you can, and it has been done the other way around, you can just synthesize a bunch of chemicals that history tells you are going to be active, right? Like the xanthines. You know they're going to be biologically active. So you can randomly screen them in a bunch of pharmacology endpoints, and you could say, geez, look, it's active in the cardiovascular screen, not the CNS screen. Let's go with that or vice versa. So Paul Jansen was the absolute uh, genius at that. He would take two compounds that in vitro looked almost identical. Most people would choose which one to throw out. He would put them in biological screens, find a tiny little difference. He would have CNS drug and a cardiovascular drug after a whole lot of synthesis. Sir James Black, of course, is famous for the other way. He set up a target and then he narrowed down the compounds till he uh, got that. So both of them work, and so do many other uh, actions. So what about natural products? I give the example of Kratom here because it's in the news so much, and it seems like in everything else these days, people are choosing sides. You know, it's either really good or it's the next most evil thing. And, of course, from a drug discovery point of view, it's neither one. It's absolutely fascinating substance, and I invite you to learn about its pharmacology because I've called it nature's tremidal. It has, number one, it, it amazes me that nature has evolved an opioid-like substance twice in different parts of the world. So I think that's kind of interesting in and of itself. And Kratom has two different pharmacologies depending on the low dose or the high dose. And the low dose, it's used by the natives where it's grown as sort of a stimulant to do more work. So there, the people who use it in the low dose are admired by society because they're working harder, bringing more money back to their families. But there's no doubt at a higher dose, it becomes more opioid-like. And where I live in Tucson, there are three shops that sell it, all of which are literally two blocks away from the university. So, uh, and when I asked them about how many people are using it for the stimulant, he didn't even know it had a stimulant activity. They're, they're buying it for the opioid effects. The other fascinating thing about it is if you look at the structure, it does not at first look like an opioid structure at all. So again, there's a whole lot of interesting things going on there for drug discovery. So that's just one example of uh, the opportunities that the natural products still hold. Uh, medicinal chemistry insight is still extremely uh, important. Uh, you know, there you can start from the end product and work back on to how to synthesize it. Uh, one really good example, I think, would be acetaminophen. And we'll come back to that. Acetaminophen, you know, how do you make a better acetaminophen? Uh, that's a tough one. 
and there's almost no pharmaceutical company that feels they know how to do that. If it is going to be done, it's going to be done by an old-fashioned medicinal chemist who's not going to screen a million compounds to get the good one, and I'll explain why. Combinatorial chemistry is another way of uh, screening compounds very quickly, and it's exactly what it sounds like. I won't go into details, but basically you take little pieces of molecules and then you screen them together and you look at what combination works the best. This is actually the way Paul Janssen used to do it in the old-fashioned way. He would have high school chemistry students make what he would call heads and tails of uh, substances that he knew were active. And then he would just have the chemist combine them. So that was sort of a, uh, a more manual way of doing combinatorial chemistry, and it was almost always successful. They weren't all drugs, but he almost always got activity because he started with active moieties. Fragment-based is kind of similar, but here you would do it at the level of the computer. You would use the computer to complement the, the rest of the work. And so the idea here is you recognize that in order to fit, in this case, this receptor or enzyme space, you're going to need a molecule that looks something like this, right? So the way you would screen is just you take a million compounds and you would screen all of them till you found one that fit. Oops, I can't quite, I don't know where I'm pointing over there. but So the fragment base says, well, you know what? Why don't we look at where the individual fragments bind to the active sites and then we'll glue them together? And then we just have to hope that when you glue them together, you'll get this molecule that way. But you'll be able to do it, you'll, you'll lose a lot less possible actives by doing it this way, right? Because you only have to find binding to this pocket or this pocket or this pocket, right? So that's a sort of a, a more modern, clever way of doing it. Now when I say modern, that's been around for uh, 10 years or more. So a lot of the uh, drug discovery still occurs in the same place, but instead of individual uh, chemists uh, standing at their own uh, bench top, now most of this is automated to a great extent. So the actual physical labor is automated. So uh, a real popular one is called high-throughput screening, or HTS, and the idea is that you don't know going in what the structure of the molecule should look like. So again, this is absolutely 100 degrees away from Sir James Black, who came up with a beta or a, or a histamine antagonist by looking for molecules that had the three-dimensional shape of histamine. He, he won the Nobel Prize for that thinking. So this is sort of more defer to uh, chance and you just set up your uh, assay in vitro in test tubes, and then you screen a whole bunch of compounds through there. Now this is done on a huge scale, so there are whole rooms full of these robots. So people don't even run the machines anymore, and they can, the last I heard, they could run a million compounds a day, and I'm guessing that's probably an underestimate. So there might be somebody there who knows that more than a million compounds a day can be screened through there. So the question then becomes, well, 
where do you get a million compounds to screen through there? And that's become a whole field in and of itself. In other words, what compounds do you use? Do you use Kodak's library? No, because that doesn't work. But where do you come up with these? And I'll, I'll show you one alternative uh, right here. And that is you don't even need real molecules. You can set up the computer to show you the receptor binding pocket or the enzyme binding pocket, right? And then you have the computer design molecules. And then it just works all night. And it says, Does this, would this structure fit if somebody were make it, right? And then in the morning, you get the readout, and it says, oh, here's, some te here's 10 compounds that would fit if we can make it. And so then someone has set the task of making it. Now, one thing, I, I, I get the impression that people think it's very difficult to come up with analgesic targets, and it's actually the opposite. It's too easy. I mean, if you just randomly screen 100 compounds in a laboratory, I guarantee probably 10 of those would show analgesic activity. And then you would have to figure out what the mechanism is. But it's not difficult. And this is just a tiny partial list of all the mechanisms that have been demonstrated and published to be analgesic. And there's many, many more. So that's not the hard part. The hard part is deciding which of these makes sense. Uh, what are the profiles of these, uh, et cetera. But it's sort of an interesting uh, undertaking to say, you know, well, how was the body designed to relieve pain? And we certainly know the opioid system was the predominant one. The question then becomes, well, what are these? Are these just coupled to particular types of pain? migraine or inflammatory pain or neuropathic pain or whatever, are we just heading toward an age in which there's not going to be a single tablet for all types of pain, mild, moderate, or severe, that it would be targeted only for particular types of pain? So we don't fully know the answer yet. So let me give you a couple examples from recent years. And this is uh, peripherally restricted uh, mu opioid receptor agonist. So the idea is very clean, and that is that morphine's analgesic effect is produced in the, the brain and in the periphery. But the uh, you know the abuse liability part, respiratory depression, is beyond the blood-brain barrier. So if you could keep it just a periphery. You might have a good analgesic uh, with far fewer problems. So there's several approaches that right away every drug discoverer would take. Uh, there's sort of, oops, two uh, major ones. Uh, on the top there, you would just go through uh, random screening, high-throughput screening, and then you would get over to the right, and with all the active compounds, you would look for selectivity at that receptor, Intrinsic activity, is it an agonist or an antagonist, and does it pass the blood-brain barrier? And boom, you'd be done. You almost would not even have to go into an animal. That's why the dotted line. Once you knew all that information, you almost don't need the animal. The other way you could do this is through the computer, 
instead of buying the opioid receptors and putting them in test tubes, you could design it on the computer and using AI, you could come up with compounds and you could do the same thing. And again, you really wouldn't have to uh, ever put it into animals. Now, what about neuropathic pain? The problem with that is we don't know the exact target, so you have to come up with ideas, not compounds. But you could do it the same way. Once you have the idea, you could set those enzymes or receptors up in the test tube or on the computer. You could screen compounds and the same thing. The question here is going to be, what's the animal model? What's the right animal model for neuropathic pain uh, that correlates to the humans? And in fact, people are arguing, do we even have good animal models for acute pain, let alone neuropathic pain? So again, a little bit different. And if you're starting out on drug discovery, it's important to know when you start out, uh, where, where's your challenge? Is it buying the receptors or is it the computer modeling? Uh, but after you have the compounds, it's gonna be easy. Or in this case, you're going to have compounds. But the question is, how are you going to be able to translate that into uh, the human situation? Now, there's also situation-dependent strategies. So depending on where you are at a company or an academic lab, what is your goal? Uh, you know, you could undertake broad screens and just test it in everything. Just say, I want an active compound. So you just test the chemicals in a whole variety of assays. Uh, you know, here your advantage is that you can get unexpected activity, um, and you could also possibly detect synergy, which you can't do in single assays. Another way would be targeted screens in which you're targeting a particular mechanism of action. So the good news is when you find a compound, you really know exactly how it works as opposed to a broad screen in which you have activity, but you may not know exactly how it works. Acetaminophen is tough because we don't know how it works. Uh, you know, a lot of people have published that they know how it works, uh, but not all of them have s stood up. Uh, famous one is COX-3. Uh, that's great, but there's really no COX-3 in humans, so that didn't work too well. So how do you do that? What screen do you set up? There is no screen. Uh, and if you use a screen in animals, you may get an active compound, but how do you prove it's acetaminophen-like? So this is a particularly tough one, and I think the only way forward here would be a medicinal chemist who has studied the field for decades and just has the insight to be able to uh, move this forward. And I think that's what it's gonna take, but Again, if you know of some people who are looking for new acetaminophens, let me know. We'll be happy to present that or have them present it. Combinations uh, offer a lot of good possibilities, but it turns out they're pretty tough. They're expensive to get through uh, basic research. They're expensive to do the clinical trials because you're going to be very excited about the synergy or the advantage of a combination in terms of your therapeutic endpoint. But the FDA is going to challenge you and say, well, if there's an unexpected benefit or synergy on the plus side, maybe there is in toxicology as well. So they're going to demand the toxicology of the combination, even if it's two substances which you say, hey, it's been around forever, We've known everything there is to know about it. It's not going to work for them. 
but it offers a lot of good possibility. And but I just give you a heads up with that uh, sort of esoteric sort of graph there. There's a right way of showing synergy, and if you don't do it that way, and you're challenged, your patent is challenged. Uh, it's not going to hold up, and that can be pretty disappointing if you've gotten that far along. The overall process on the left is sort of the old way, and I'll sort of finish uh, up here. The old way, I don't know how many hours, days, <laughs> weeks I spent with flowcharts, and uh, you know the idea is, well, we're going to do this first, and then we're going to do that next, and then if and or we go on to the next one. Uh, nowadays in drug discovery, it's all together. It all occurs simultaneously. The basic science people are talking to the marketing people, the regulatory people, right from day one. And no one's going to start doing anything until everybody's in agreement that they at least see the entire pathway. It's at least worthwhile undertaking at that point in time. And then, of course, you know, it can always change, but at least... Uh, so it's a whole different uh, ballgame than it used to be. And then finally, uh, hopefully uh, with information that's fed back from the clinicians, uh, this stirs the preclinical people, and that stimulates uh, clinical research, and it's a feedback loop, and everybody's working together, and that's really what we intend when we say uh, translational uh, research. So with that, I thank you. And now Dr. Pergolesi is going to come up and talk about some examples of drugs that have benefited from the various types of discovery. Thank you, Bob. Do you have, uh, you have a... I got it right here. Okay. So we only have a short time left, and that's okay because um, mine's really just to get you excited. Two things that I would like you to take away from this. One is that there is a distinct difference between creativity and innovation. You could be very, very creative. And you could do that in the context of your cubicle at work or at home and write a great patent, and it never goes anywhere. Innovation is when you take creativity and you make it actionable. And in drug discovery, that's a necessity to get things off of the bench and get them into actual clinical practice. With pain medicine, we happen to be a little bit more aggressive when it comes to what we call translational medicine, particularly in the interventional world, in the medical devices. But with drugs, we still have a lot that we need to do and figure out. So Bob's giving you some concepts that hopefully will stimulate you. And they fall underneath the auspices of uh, market-aligned planning. And the new modern-day drug development does include marketing and health economics and outcomes research and the basic scientists and the clinicians and all of the other people who are going to potentially be touching this drug, even patients. Some of the new drug development strategies that I'm involved with actually ask the patients, what is it that you want out of this drug, right? So do you want your glycosylated hemoglobin to go down or would you rather be able to eat pasta and drink wine? I don't know. And it's a different type of um, drug development scenario, and that's how we're progressing with personalized medicine as well. So what uh, happens um, when you have something like pain, which affects so many people uh, in the United States and across the world? Well, 
And at the same time, you're trying to individualize therapies. Well, all of these concepts that Bob mentioned, the looking at the mechanism of action, looking at the medicinal chemistry, all of those converge when we actually get um, to the phase one. And then after phase one, you know, we go through a series of phases, two and three, and then even some post-market. And this is all the fate of drug development. So over the last couple of years, we've talked about different drugs in development. And here's a couple that you may know of or that are coming out. Um, the nerve growth factor, the novel mechanism that offers uh, significant potential. There are at least three companies that uh, were developing it. There's, there's two groups now of four companies altogether. And these seem to be very promising. And I would suggest you look into the mechanism of action because they're different. Um, the NAV 1.7 and 1.8, these, again, these sodium channel um, type agents have been uh, very, very, uh, a lot of excitement about them, but unfortunately haven't progressed like, uh, like we'd like to. But there still are some that are out there. And then there's some agents like um, Haran's agent, which can receive the complete response letter. This was a long-acting local anesthetic with um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory that was delivered peripherally. And um, the FDA had more questions for it, so it's still under development. You have other agents that already are on the market, like Pasira, that have gotten some new indications uh, in the last 18 months. There are some companies that have been struggling to get their molecules uh, approved, and they've done some work, like Direct. Uh, Jim and his group have now uh, refiled with the FDA based on some data that they have. Um, Inacol, this, uh, may, you may remember this, it's an implantable type of local anesthetic uh, sponge. It was determined that it was a, a drug device by the FDA, and so now these guys are back in trying to figure that out. Nectar, um, very uh, exciting molecule. I think a lot of us heard about this last year. Um, but, uh, you know, very quietly, this company sort of pulled back on this asset, and we're sort of still wondering where it is. I mean, what's interesting is that um, it may affect uh, the way that the uh, mu opioid agonist crosses the blood-brain barrier. Avenue Therapeutics took an older drug uh, that's been used in, in uh, Europe a lot, uh, Tramadol, um, and an injectable formulation, and they just reported some interesting phase three data. But it is interesting, and I, and I, I tell you, you need to go back and look at that. ExcelRx was actually, uh, did overcome their complete response letter and got a very limited approval. Syntrexion is using, uh, Jim and his group are using, and Randall are using an injectable uh, capsaicin. And uh, again, this seems to be progressing nicely, uh, ending their phase three trials. Caratherapeutics uh, was a peripheral um, acting uh, kappa um, agonist. And uh, as you see here, the indication actually changed from analgesia now to pruritus. Warren Wren's running that group, and it looks uh, very promising for that indication. Recro Pharma just recently announced that they're spinning off their asset, Meloxicam, which received a complete response letter, an injectable IV Meloxicam. Um, Numentum, a company I work with, uh, they have a um, continuous infused NSAID. First time that we're seeing that from an FDA standpoint, and again, encouraging data coming out of phase one moving into phase three. Bridge Therapeutics is taking a novel way of delivering uh, buprenorphine, an atypical opioid, and looking at higher doses than we currently use for analgesia to seek an analgesic um, indication. Bob briefly talked about this uh, bias ligand, and again, we're still waiting for um, a final decision from FDA on where the development will go. 
Many of you may know about serpinopidol. This is a very interesting first-in-class pharmacology with a NOPE receptor agonist, um, and it's actually a phase three ready asset. Notice that it's an atypical opioid. Note the mechanism of action. So very interesting because this is a single key that can unlock many doors, right? So very, very interesting asset. And actually, you've done a good amount of phase two trials, about five of them, and it's uh, out there um, uh, with an uh, unknown um, ownership right now as far as who's going to develop it further. Uh, these were those peripherally restricted CAPA uh, agonists that I mentioned. Um, Bob also mentioned them, and they're, again, being looked for other types of opportunities. This here is a um, a secretory uh, phospholipolipase A. It's very interesting because it works above the arachidonic acid, almost like a steroid. And what you're finding is that this was uh, originally uh, uh, seen from plant oils, and now uh, they are making synthetic versions of it for analgesia, um, both with uh, LPL and the non-esterified fatty acids. Uh, just a little bit more about buprenorphine. I think we're still going to continue to learn more and more. You know, adding buprenorphine to a pure mu opioid agonist with beta aristatin 2 technologies. What will that do? Craig Hattrick had a great presentation in Berlin that talked about the good opioids, right? And how we're going to be using these type of atypical opioid manifestations. Um, a lot has to do with better understanding of buprenorphine and the fact that even though it's listed as a partial agonist, um, it really at analgesic dose ranges has um, uh, full agonist type activity. And I think we've shown that both intrinsic and intrinsic response. Then you can look at equipotent analgesia when it comes to morphine and buprenorphine and you see that you don't lose any efficacy by using a lower dose, more potent opioid. So that's just a quick run. And the reason I added that is because all the work that's done up front by Bob and people like Bob and their teams and many of you out there actually does see its way across the finish line. And so I encourage all of you to continue collaborating uh, together and to bring those ideas forward. Uh, we're very open um, for this particular session uh, for next year that if you are developing things, let us know. We'd love to have you on the panel. We'd love to have you highlight your work. It's that important to everybody. So with that, I want to open up for any questions that we may have, and I thank all of you for uh, attending this inaugural session. Thank you very much, and thank you, Bob. Yeah, we have till 2.30, I think, is what they told me. So are there any questions that we may be able to answer for you? Well, that's either a good thing or a bad thing. We'll have to see how that works out. <laughs> well, I guess with that, I want to thank all of you for attending. Yes, comes up. Pay oh, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, why don't we ask? Right. So uh, the question was, what about the regulatory pathway for substances that uh, are derived from plants? And uh, part of that I can answer easily. The other part I don't know so much. But once you've isolated the compound, the active, uh, well, let's, let's assume there's one major active in there. So in the case of... Uh, 
uh, kratom, it's metrogenine or even 6-hydroxymetrogenine. That's probably the most active. So if, if that's what's going to be pursued, then it's easy. Then there's, there's no difference, regulatory standpoint, than any other NCE. If, it's, if the magic is in some mixture of the chemicals, then it's more difficult for a couple of reasons. One being you're dealing with more than one compound. So all the tests are going to have to be done almost in duplicate or triplicate to handle all the combinations. Because uh, you have to do all the, you know, the metabolism is going to be more complicated, et cetera. But the pathway from a basic science point of view is going to be the same. Now, from a regulatory point of view, I don't know if it falls under, I'll defer whether it falls under a different uh, yeah. group or not. Well, they have the homeopath um, agents, which you can try that regulatory pathway. They have supplements, even some OTC uh, monograph products. And the OTC monograph was recently updated. Uh, so you can look to those type of opportunities as well um, to uh, give you a better, clear direction on which regulatory. Once you start to talk about structure function claims, uh, these are the areas where you might cross the crescendo or the penundrum into a drug. And so, um, you know, typically you'll see, uh, you know, disclaimers that say does not treat um, uh, cure, prevent disease, something, diagnose, etc. And usually that means that, uh, you know, they're, they're either being considered a, a, um, a supplement or they have a, a strict homeopathic type of um, indication for them. So there is a book uh, listing of the various homeopathics that you can look for. Um, there have been some companies that have taken historical data from outside the United States and tried to use that for an approval as well. Um, and then there are some OTCs that have um, natural products in them that, uh, that are listed uh, that you can adopt that pathway. You're welcome. Yes. Um, and when you talked about the future is going to be in the biologics or in the small molecules? Because it's small molecules, it seems a little bit difficult to come up with really uh, new molecules with, you know, some solid mechanism for paying treatment. Uh, so I think, I think they had your mic off for a while. I, I think the question was, are we more likely to have small molecules or biologics yes. uh, in the mm -hmm. future? You know, that, that's hard to uh, predict. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I think we're in a state, uh, everybody, a reflection. So, you know, it's a field that can't help but being impacted by what's going on with the you know, the financial, the legal system, ethical issues, uh, misinformation, uh, lawsuits, and all that. So I, I think where I come down on this, just 
the way I look at it from a basic science point of view, is I try to say, you know, we want to take a natural approach. And really what we're trying to do is communicate with the body. And we can do that. We, we could accomplish the endpoint in one of two ways, same way you would with people. You know, if I asked you to clean, clear the room, I could get up and yell and scream. And my guess is eventually you'd get scared and you'd probably leave the room. So in a way, I achieved the therapeutic endpoint, but there'd be an awful lot of adverse effects, right? <laughs> or the other way is I could try to say, well, what language would work and what words would work best, in which case I could just lower my voice and just give clear directions, and I'd accomplish the same thing with very little adverse effects. So I think the way I would start is to say, well, how's, what's the communication system in the body in terms of pain? And the answer clearly involves the opioid system. Now, we've thought all along that we were talking softly to the opioid system, but maybe we've been yelling at it. And, you know, maybe we're given doses of opioids that are much higher than synaptic levels of the endogenous opioids, and maybe we're distributing it through in parts of the body where it doesn't need to go. So I think there's still uh, some opportunity there. The other thing we could do is, well, maybe we could, maybe there are other pathways. Of all the ones that I listed, maybe they have specific pain connections. And maybe the idea that we're going to have, you know, just a handful of analgesics for all pains is going to be passe. And maybe for those, it's going to be biologics. Um, you know, I, I, I think actually from a drug discovery point of view, it's an extraordinarily exciting time, except there's all these negatives. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of money to study it. There's not a lot of enthusiasm in pharmaceutical companies to have an incremental improvement on a drug when there's not any more good guarantee that that incremental basic science improvement will be uh, rewarded. So we're sort of at a phase where we know the deficits, a lot of the analgesics, and we may be stuck knowing that and nobody being able to push, have an incremental improvement. So... Uh, I don't know. But I mean, in terms of the basic science, it's an extraordinarily exciting time. I would say to, uh, on Bob's end, too, I think when you're looking at drug development, you have to think of ultimately, you know, write the label first and then work towards it from the clinical side. Um, understand the regulatory hurdles. Some of these are not well-defined, right? That's a problem as a drug developer. How, how am I going to achieve an outcome that, you know, the agency who's sort of grading you on doesn't really know. Uh, and getting someone to fund it, that's another big issue too. And so I tend to believe that these, uh, quote, bigger home run ideas seem to have a little bit more uh, sex appeal to the, mm -hmm. to the uh, investment communities mm -hmm. as opposed to just an incremental benefit on top of an existing class of drugs. And that's, uh, that's problematic too because sometimes those incremental benefits are very meaningful but they just won't be funded. 
So yeah, that's I, a problem. Go ahead. Yeah, just to follow up on that, I mean, without, even without straying too far from the known mechanisms, so the opioids, you know, in every other field of medicine that I could think of, there are second, third, maybe fourth generation drugs. In the opioid field, we're still on first generation. <laughs> and all the debate is centering around these first generation drugs. And we have second generation drugs. Now, they're not perfect. But I mean, buprenorphine, tramadol, tepentadol, sibranopradol. I mean, they are clearly different. And they're better in a little bit better, in a little way, than the first generation. Why don't we call them second generation drugs? The NSAIDs, you know, when COX-2 was announced in 1990 or so, research on cyclooxygenase analgesia dropped to zero, including us. We thought COX-2 inhibitors were going to just take over the field. So nothing, hardly anything new has been learned about that field. So that's been wallowing all those years. Uh, acetaminophen, nobody's going to pay to study acetaminophen. There's, there's something magical with acetaminophen. I mean, we ought to learn what's going on there. I think the other thing that's extraordinarily important, you know, what, what has been new is the activation of descending systems, right? So, I mean, that's all brand new. And we know those neurotransmitters. It's norepinephrine and serotonin. So we've known what they are. And I think, just my personal view as an engineer, you have the ascending system and you have the, here, you've heard it here first. You have the ascending system and you have the descending system. People are studying this one. People are studying this one. They have to be connected. And they have to be controlled by the equivalent of a thermostat. The control of the temperature of this room is neither the heater nor the air conditioner or the wires or the light switches. It's the thermostat. So imagine if there were an equivalent called a nocistat. <laughs> And where is it? What is it? Maybe in chronic pain, maybe that's what's wrong. Maybe it's not the individual thing. So I think there, there's so much right now that would be exciting to study and I think offers the opportunity if the times were just a little bit different. Yes, behind you. I do not. I run one. So we can talk about that later on. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that they're good. I mean, the bottom line is you have to have the same elements. It's, it's really um, your IP, how strong your IP is, uh, how far you've gotten your project you know, along. Um, if you have a, a broad or a narrow vision. Um, and, and then it's really, uh, you know, it takes a lot of uh, visceral fortitude to get the funding. You have to go out there and you have to, um, you know, get beyond the incubator stage, right? Um, but I think incubators are a good idea. There are academic ones, there are private ones, and they're a, a, a good way to try to accelerate some of these, uh, these concepts. Are, are there any novel systems for, um, for pain relief that are being developed at all? Like, mm -hmm. like all the things you showed us, um, you started to write, uh, were combinations of drugs that already exist or long-acting drugs that already exist. Is there any novel new drugs coming yeah, down yeah, the pipeline? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think almost all the mechanisms that I showed in that table 
Uh, I mean, NGF is pretty far along the uh, uh, sodium channel compounds. Uh, there's also a whole lot, uh, you know, well, the peripheral, peripheral mu, the peripheral kappa. Uh, so there's been nice twists and turns and advantages. Uh, alpha-2 is a dynamite mechanism, very good mechanism, very strong mechanism of pain relief. Uh, E3. I mean, I think, I think what's been keeping a lot of them down is, you, you know, you got these monsters. So you got the opioids, you got the NSAIDs, you got acetaminophen. I mean, traditionally, that's, they have everything covered, so there's no room left. But I think now that there's going to be room for more targeted therapy, now you're going to see opportunities for all these others. I mean, there's, there's endless numbers of, of possibilities. And I think you're seeing some of this with um, uh, the uh, proliferation of um, desire for use and research for the cannabinoids. I think you'll see a whole bunch of things, you know, on the neuromodulation, how these things are working. Uh, I think that that's sort of spurring a lot of innovation. Yeah, modulation is another good word because a lot of these receptors, we think of agonists and antagonists, but there's a lot of allosteric modulators now. And so, I mean, I think that offers a lot of possibility of getting more targeted activity with fewer adverse effects. And that's sort of an unexplored area for a lot of the receptors. Yes, and also uh, you bring to mind something. I was just at a uh, uh, thesis defense, and uh, I guess uh, it hasn't been published yet, so I can't say too much, but it was a uh, hormone that's expressed more in women. doesn't begin with E. (laughs) And uh, it it was absolutely fascinating that it plays a, a seems to play a very important role, at least in their preclinical animal models. I mean, it was just stunning. Um, so I think it's stuff like that that could, I mean, that could be a game changer. I mean, so I know it's not exactly what you asked, but I think it's, there are, there are, there are, it is, there are, is, there is research going on that I think just is going to open up this field wide open. Perfect. Well, again, I want to thank all of you for attending and enjoy the rest of pain week. Thank you. Thank you, Bob.